This week's show is Professor Joseph Hirschwink, who will tell us where our oxygen comes from and why we should be grateful that plants do not absorb green. So stay tuned for all this here on the Rock Science Show. The Grok Science Show. Well, I'm here right now in San Francisco's Moscone Center at the AGU convention, and with me right now is Professor Joseph Kirschwink from the California Institute of Technology. He's a renowned expert in geobiology and paleontology, and previously he joined us to talk about the snowball earth theory. Well, this time he's going to tell us about his thoughts on, on how our prehistoric earth got its oxygen. Professor Kirschwink, thanks for joining us again. The history of oxygenation. Two different schools. There's one school of folks who think cyanobacteria evolved maybe over three billion years ago, and another group, myself included, that think it came in with a bang at about 2.3, 2.4 billion years ago. Totally different histories. Um, the one camp thinks that, well, maybe these bugs evolved and there were limits on their growth in the environment. They couldn't quite get over this barrier to jump into an aerobic world, and so they were basically confined to little niches where they would throw out a little molecule of oxygen and hide from it. Um, it's an interesting debate. So, to give us a little background to our audience, cyanobacteria was previously known as blue-green algae. For most people, wh what is that? Are those the phytoplanktons or other creatures we see in the ocean? <clears throat> well, uh, cyanobacteria are actually a group of bacteria. Uh, they're single-celled bacteria, uh, very uh, primitive uh, compared to eukaryotes. <clears throat> they don't have in intracellular organelles. Uh, they're photosynthetic mean, uh, uh, machinery, just kind of a, a folded membranes that go back and forth. And then the photosynthetic machinery is arrayed al along these uh, pancake-like membranes inside them. Able to split water, they have the biochemical machinery for uh, usually two different types of photosynthesis: photosystem one and photosystem two, and they absorb different portions of the uh, uh, so, uh, solar spectrum and are able to uh, break water into oxygen and uh, reduced carbon. They're the ancestors of green plants, uh, <clears throat> green plants and algae are other organisms, other groups that have swallowed up those cells and incorporated them as organelles and allowed them to work from there. In, so you mentioned about their ability to produce um, oxygen, by, but why is that poisonous for them? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> oxygen turns out to be a universal poison. It is a nasty compound. Uh, it can, <clears throat> in solution, if it bumps into a metal uh, atom that can give an electron, 
it'll form something called superoxide. Now that superoxide will wander around for uh, milliseconds to seconds or so, and will react with a water molecule to form super hydroxyl radical, OH dot. That OH dot is extremely nasty. It lasts for nanoseconds. If it hits, a, say, the backbone of a DNA molecule, it'll break it. It's a mutagen. Uh, highly toxic. You don't want it. In fact, oxidative damage uh, produced by, super, by, by hydroxyl radicals is one of the main, main uh, damaging things for DNA, which leads to cancer, da da da. Anybody who takes antioxidants is basically fighting that step. And, and so um, you have a theory about how these organisms develop an enzymatic pathway to, to guard against the oxygen. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <clears throat> oh yeah, well here's the problem. The cyanobacteria release oxygen, but it's a poison. So which came first? The protections against the poison or the poison? And from a biological sense, you, the, the protections against the poisons had to come first. Because a cell that tried to release an oxygen, oxygen molecule without protecting itself would die. I mean, just impossible to think about it. So one of the big geochemical environmental questions is, if we imagine we go back three billion years to an environment with no oxygen in it, how do you evolve enzymes to protect yourself from oxygen before you have oxygen? Well, obviously you had to have some source of oxygen in, in the environment. But that's been a really difficult puzzle. Uh, you can generate a little bit of oxygen from ultraviolet light, but that happens way up in the atmosphere usually, <clears throat> and the molecules that are formed get snuffed out very, very, very quickly. It's a tiny fraction of what it is. In fact, uh, if you didn't quench that oxygen that was formed, it would take about 40 to 50 million years for that process to build up the amount of oxygen we have. And the amount of gases that would quench it, reducing gases they're called, which come out of volcanoes, vastly dwarf it. So there's really there's no way of getting that oxygen down on the surface in this month, except one. And, and the exception that we've uncovered a few years ago was ice at the poles. Okay, if you imagine an environment with no oxygen, the ozone screen is not there, and over the poles you could get that ultraviolet light coming right down to the surface of the ice. Uh, and there are some photochemical reactions that make hydrogen peroxide gas. Now, it's kind of neat, it's hydrogen peroxide is what you bleach your hair with, I mean, it's kind of, you know, clean your hands, because it's such a strong oxidant that most things can't can survive it. So on, the, so on the surface of the glaciers, uh, what happens is that you generate a little bit of H2O2, and that freezes out into the ice surface. Now, you say, well, how do you know this happens? And it turns out we have an example because of the ozone hole. The Antarctic ozone hole is exactly the situation. Ultraviolet light hits right down to the surface of the ice, and you can actually go into ice cores and measure hydrogen peroxide. And you can see the wiggles of the last couple decades, in the 50 or 60 years, where the ozone hole expanded. You can actually see the concentrations of peroxide going up and down seasonally with the ozone hole. So we know what happens. So all we're doing is saying, all right, 
This is a modern example of what Precambrian glaciers would have been. And we know that there were four or five major Precambrian glacial advances in the anaerobic environments. And so we've got 100 million years or so of time where the peroxides in this ice would build up. And of course, when the ice eventually melts, it releases that peroxide, and the peroxide hits the chemistry of seawater, forms molecular oxygen in the water, and it, back, it disproportionates back into it. And so it's, it's a little micro-environment that's poisoned by oxygen. And that can run for hundreds of millions years of years during these Precambrian glacial intervals and poison life to protect itself from that. But once life has protected itself from that, it can make that next few steps to generate oxygen-releasing photosynthesis. So the interesting implication is we breathe oxygen. Animals need that oxygen to have the electrochemical ability to be animals. On a planet without glaciers around some distant star, if the planet, Earth-like planet, everything else the same, if it was just a little bit too close to the star so that it didn't have these glaciers, it might never evolve oxygen. And so animals wouldn't evolve. And hence, you would never, <clears throat> if the planet was a little bit too close, you might never see oxygen in this spectral gas. But aren't you assuming that this life form that we see is going to be based on carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, whereas some other oxalate, it could be silicon-based types of life form? Yeah, chemistry doesn't work for that, sorry. <laughs> no, I think silicate <clears throat> molecules do not form long-chain silicates of the reactivity and stability. And people have speculated about for you, that for years, but the bottom line comes in, you're hit with basic chemistry. Mm. It doesn't work. Fascinating. Um, so this evolution you're talking about occurred about 2.4 billion years ago, is that right? Yeah. Um, there are actually two well-known intervals of glacial time. Uh, one is called the Pongola uh, in, in the Archean. It's about 2.9 to 2.8 billion years old, mainly preserved in Swaziland in South Africa. Uh, three main glacial advances, extremely rich. No evidence of oxygen uh, photosynthesis across them. But <clears throat> it's a time interval where it could evolve exposure to oxygen to develop a synthesis. And then there's a big debate between 2.7 to 2.5 as to whether there's whiffs of oxygen in the environment. But frankly, when we look at the evidence for those whiffs and look at the actual rock, they turn out to be associated with hydrothermal veins. There's secondary artifacts. And in fact, even though the people have claimed to have biomarkers from them of photosynthesis and oxygen requiring things, you look at the rock that those biomarkers came from, they've been heated to 400 degrees Celsius for 10 million years. I don't know of any biomarker that survives that treatment. So the biomarkers are contaminants, full stop. Uh, just complete false uh, result. So I, I don't see any compelling evidence for oxygen until about 2.4 to 2.3 billion. And in fact, about 2.45, we start another glacial interval. It's called the Huronian glaciations, based on the type areas in Canada. And the uh, oldest one of those glaciers is called the Ramsey Lake 
a diamond dead. Again, no evidence of oxygen. Uh, all, all of the geological indicators of no oxygen seem to be there. And then you go to a couple other glacial intervals, and towards the end of those you start seeing interesting chemical markers, maybe more oxidizing than that. And, and then suddenly one of those glacials we know is a low-latitude glaciation event, a snowball. And, and just before that snowball, there's a, a weird unit that seems to have a lot of sedimentary manganese in it associated with no traces of oxygen. Again, so as if maybe life could suddenly precipitate manganese from solution, but without oxygen, and that, that's a puzzle. But it may actually be a stepping stone to the evolution of this oxygen-releasing complex in photosystem two. It's, it's a four manganese cluster with a calcium atom that kind of acts as a, an, a charge capacitor, stores electrons, four photons get charged up and they store the, the energy in these manganese atoms, and then boom, they reduce, uh, they, they, they break apart water and produce oxygen. And, and, and then after that snowball, there's a weird interval of time called the Lomagundi uh, event, uh, where the carbon cycle's out of balance. It looks like the cyanobacteria were let leash on the planet, let loose on the planet, and nobody could breathe the oxygen yet. They so could protect. The global events you're talking about. Global events. I mean, uh, the snowball was about 50 to 100 million years in length. I'm not exactly sure. The whole planet would be covered by kilometers of ice. Only survival would be organisms at hydrothermal vents, maybe, or in hot springs. The photosynthesis. Photosynthesis would survive in hot spring environments on the surface. But following that, the, the, the carbon cycle got completely out of whack. You kind of think that we may have had a, the cyanobacteria releasing oxygen, but nothing could breathe the oxygen. So <clears throat> on the one hand, you release the oxygen and you make reduced carbon in the sugars. And so the ocean's probably gummed up with petroleum. And we may have had five bars of atmosphere O2. I mean, super barrack thing. And when we see the geological fingerprint of this, one of the world's richest iron mines in South Africa is, is um, a scission deposit. And it, it's 100 meters of leached pure hematite in a soil horizon that's unlike anything we've seen since then. That's 2.1 billion. And, and we probably didn't learn how to breathe oxygen. Aerobic respiration probably didn't evolve till after that. And when it did, suddenly we got balanced back in the carbon cycle. So we've had a two, I mean, you can think about it. You're not gonna learn how to breathe it and get energy from it until after you have it. There has to be a time gap between the evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis and the time at which the biosphere learned how to breathe it. I think that event is the Lomagundi event at about 2.2 to 2.0 billion. Right. The weirdest excursion in the carbon cycle. So yeah, it's fun times. Think about a planet like Earth with a five bar O2 atmosphere. If it's 200 million years, that's 5% of the history of the planet. So let's look at 100 Earth style planets. If they're really Earth style alive with this scenario, that, that stage might be one in 20. We might see that spectrally. That's something we could see in the atmosphere of an extrasolar planet. Yeah. Well, regarding cyanobacteria, 
you know, of course, they ab- absorb certain frequencies of sunshine. Uh, and you had written that if they had absorbed a wider range, then the conditions on the planet would be very different. Well, they, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you look at the Earth is adapted to that balance. There's the regulatory effects of greenhouse warming and radiation. If if the temperature warms up too much, silicate weathering increases, and it draws down the carbon dioxide, which lowers the temperature. So there's a negative feedback on the temperature. <clears throat> so the Walker casting uh, silicate weathering hypothesis goes back 30 years. Beautiful studies. So my point is that out of chance, photosystem one and photosystem two in cyanobacteria don't use green photons very effectively. That's why plants are green. They bounce the green photons back. But <clears throat> if the antenna pigments have been a little bit different, you could imagine absorbing a broader spectrum and more efficiently use photosynthesis. That means plants would be black. Okay. But what would that mean is that you know forests and things would have a lower albedo, and so they would absorb more heat, so the CO2 would be lower. Yes. And, and that would happen if it if the world had been a little different. So I get a little bit concerned when my friends in chemistry and biochemistry go, oh, well, we know photosynthesis is less efficient than it could be. Maybe we could make it more efficient. Yeah. Harry Gray in particular, Professor at Caltech that teaches Chem 1, had postdocs working on this problem. And, and I kind of said, well, you really might not want to do that because if you suddenly uh, Release. released a cyanobacterium that was black... And it, you know, it doesn't give a damn about what it does. It'll just take over the oceans and turn the oceans black instead of green. And you might want to worry about the relative albedo and what the biosphere would have to do. And maybe we'd go into a super greenhouse. <clears throat> I, I got this panic email from one of Harry's former postdocs saying, "Please don't tell us we can't do this. We're trying to do this." <laughs> so we're just lucky so far that. Nature hasn't mutated something that would absorb the, at the green spectrum, then. The bottom line is, evolution doesn't give a damn about whether it's good or bad for the rest of the environment. A mutant uh, only cares about itself. And I'm a little somewhat concerned about genetic engineering, releasing organisms that haven't jumped evolutionary barriers. Now, I mean, these things happen randomly with time, but then the biosphere evolves and adapts to it. It it happened with oxygen. I I like the current biosphere because I'm part of it. (laughs) If I have to vote, I don't want to uh, radically change the system. uh, Because those are associated with mass extinction events. Life can be nasty during a mass extinction event. So you mentioned that you've been working on a book uh, that would be published soon. And in this book, you'd also mentioned this idea of the Medea hypothesis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that, that goes back to my uh, co-author Peter Ward, published a book a few years ago on the Medea hypothesis, and it's basically saying, you know, the same thing. A lot of things that evolution has done has not been very nice for the biosphere. Many mass extinction events may have been internal events on, on, on the Earth. The counting uh, counter idea is the Gaia hypothesis, which says, oh, the environment of the Earth has been maintained by the biosphere to maximize the goodness and harmony of the biosphere, etc. That's garbage. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the the oxygenation event for that we talked about. Now, the cyanobacteria sat out there and started excreting poison. And 
the entire biosphere collapsed. It was hit by a snowball. Life is not kind to itself. I mean, and, and it could have been, you know, if it had been a little bit further from the sun, the advent of oxygenic photosynthesis could have thrown us into a permanent snowball. I mean, you could imagine a scenario where mutations on Earth in life could have taken over and completely destroyed us. And, and you know, a runaway greenhouse is something that for example, would destroy us. If, if you went to the Venetian-type scenario where the oceans boil, life dies. And it may have happened. We don't know if Venus had life. We know it had a greenhouse runaway, but, but it may have, who knows, maybe something nasty like a black cyanobacterium evolved on Venus and caused it to jump over the threshold. Uh, well, planetary landers on Venus are not very good. They work better on Mars, because uh, oh. Venus is just, I mean, one lander took a few pictures before it died. The Russians did that a while ago. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> you have to give kudos to the Russians to have, have a camera work enough to send it for a couple of pictures. But anyway, getting back to this book, mm-hmm. so Peter Ward and I said, well, look, you know, enough crazy things we've learned in the history of life in the last 15, 10, 15 years. So we're putting out a little book called A New History of Life, and we're trying to point out that all sorts of crazy things have happened, including the snowballs, the destruction of a global ecosystem, uh, the Cambrian explosion, Earth's spin axis becoming unstable. There's a lot of fascinating things where Earth itself has controlled the evolution. And the Cambrian explosion seems to be one of these things where a true polar wanderer has reared its ugly head and the planet starts rolling back and forth and you know, you, stability is not there, and you blow off methane deposits. I mean, all sorts of crazy things happen, and it's fun, and, and it's a, it's a new way of looking at it, and it's like breathing a bit of excitement into the whole field of Earth's history. So, are we set for another polar wandering in the near future? There's a, um, a super plume erupting from the Coromandel boundary about then. It eventually erupted about the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. It may have contributed to the climatic events that helped kill off the dinosaurs, there's also an impact of an asteroid there, but it turns out there's a super plume as well. But the eruption of this plume head may have destabilized Earth's rotation. Italy may have been going back and forth 20 degrees. There's some weird stuff happening there. And I'm doing a lot of work on that. uh, These Italian limestones are incredibly nice. They preserve a magnetic record that's just impeccable. And you can actually tell us things like this. So, I mean, we've got thousands of samples just from a tiny interval of time there, but we're seeing these bubbles, and it's kind of wild. Now, Trupal and Wonder seems to be an unrecognized factor in the history of life that may allow us to really understand some of these things. Does some of these um, concepts, how, how do you think they may apply to anthropology or the development of the human civilization? <clears throat> it's on a Trupal and Wonder probably didn't have a great influence on human evolution. We're a little bit too stable in terms of the moment of inertia for that to happen at the moment. Give us another couple hundred million years and we'll get back in the phase where the planet rotates back and forth. Okay, great. Well, I guess we are really a little bit out of time. Uh, are, are there any last words you'd like to add or any interesting mysteries that uh, you've, you're engaged in these days? Mysteries come uh, and, and they grab you 
by the nose and then lead you around. Uh, there, there are so many wonderful things that we haven't discovered. I mean, for a young person who wants to go into the sciences, understanding the history of this planet is, is like a big detective story. Well, thank you so much for your inspiration. Okay, pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to speak with you. And we were just joined by Professor Joseph Kirschwink from the California Institute of Technology. We were just talking about where oxygen comes from, the dangers of absorbing green, and the Medea hypothesis. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. For more from the world of science, technology, and the way that affects our lives, you can check us out on the web at www.groks.net. See us at Facebook and Twitter. Our email is science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling, and stay tuned here for more music.